You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. Across the country, many Americans are thinking about food in a really different way than they ever have had to before. Suddenly, for a lot of folks, a trip to the grocery store is no longer just a casual errand. It has become a real point of stress. For other folks, it may be a fear of supply chains freezing up and how that could make your local grocery store look really different in the future. And for other people who are facing financial difficulty amid this pandemic, this could all mean depending on a food bank to keep you and your family fed for the week. As the coronavirus continues to upend so many of the systems we took for granted, there's a growing disconnect between food suppliers and distributors. That's where we want to spend the rest of the hour. And joining us to kick things off is Washington Post reporter Laura Riley, who recently wrote a piece looking at how the federal government is trying to step in to help connect the people who grow food with the people who need it the most. Laura, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, thanks for having me today. So let's start by setting the scene a little bit. Briefly describe for us how industrial farming supply chains were operating before the pandemic, and then talk about what the pandemic has done to disrupt that chain. Well, a lot of food goes, they're kind of, it's a bifurcated system. So a lot of the food in the system goes directly into food service. So restaurants, uh, you know, catering, et cetera, et cetera. And then another part of it goes to uh, serve all the, the grocery stores. So there's a huge disconnect right now in the food that would have gone to food service. A lot of times that food is not in a format or a size or whatever that can be used in, in retail. So, for instance, 50-pound bags of flour um, are hard to repackage on the fly in the 5- or 10-pound bags that we want in, in a retail context. So that's why we saw an enormous uh, you know, lag in, of, of flour in the grocery store um, when there really is no grain shortage in the system. Um, meat right now is, a, is a, a shifting target and is changing. I think several weeks ago we saw stockpiling that was just hoarding and, and panic buying on the, on the part of consumers. More recently, the meat supply has been disrupted by COVID-19 outbreaks in meat processing plants. So across the board, our meat processing plants are now at 60% capacity. Hmm. Uh, and when we talk about what effect that would have on us if that continues, if we, if we continue to see these kinds of disruptions, um, talk about what, what that would do to me or other folks who are wandering off to the grocery store trying to make sure you have enough food to, to survive all of this? Well, I, I have a story coming out today about meat supply and kind of what people need to know. So the experts I talked to said it is possible that we will see a shortfall in the grocery stores of beef, uh, pork, chicken. Some of that will be mitigated. We have a lot of beef and pork in particular in, in freezers, stuff that was either slated to go to restaurants or slated to go up. Um, overseas uh, in different trade agreements. So some of that may be repurposed, but if you think about it, a lot of that beef in particular, it's these huge cuts of beef, these primal cuts that would have to be thawed, re-butchered, and then repackaged. And, and right now, all of our meat processing workers are, you know, there's a lot of absenteeism, there's a lot of illness, they're trying to space people out in, in these plants to, to socially distance and kind of give everyone the proper PPE. 
so it's a it's a manpower issue in in many senses. Um, so last week we saw the federal government step in and say to the farmers who were hurting, whether it's dairy, uh, beef and pork, and a lot of specialty crops, vegetables, and that kind of thing. They said we will we will support you with a direct payment, and we will also buy three billion dollars of your product, and we will get it to the food banks. Mm. And so. There, the logistical challenges really are about transportation. So the farmers don't have uh, a trucking fleet to get their product to anywhere, you know. And the food banks don't, generally speaking, have uh, a huge trucking fleet. And then they also don't have on-site refrigeration to really ramp up what kind of quantity they can have on-site. So there are a lot of logistical issues um, that are yet to be worked out. Mm. So, so this this disconnect that exists between growers and distributors, especially food banks in cities, is about the way in which the system works normally. We we do rely on this sort of industrialized way of producing food. I wonder if there is conversation cropping up now about whether that system, even in the future, given that things are likely to change, some things are likely to change for good, is that system likely to change? Are we likely to move maybe away from the massive industrial nature of food supply in in this country? Well, we're definitely seeing the problems associated with that. If you consolidate and consolidate and you have these meat processing plants that can churn through 5,000 cattle a day, if one of those goes down, it can mean, you know, 5% of the meat supply is disrupted. So clearly, um, you know, having your eggs in a whole bunch of different baskets in, the, in this kind of context is much more valuable in terms of uh, resilience. Um, so if you have, you know, you see that in monocropping, you know, you have a huge acre after acre of a particular strain of corn. If that corn gets a blight uh, that's specific to that you know, cultivar, um, the whole thing can go down. So, yes, we are much more uh, agile and fleet of foot if we have lots of smaller producers doing different things and ad- adopting different strategies. And, and, you know, we're seeing in recent years, you know, vertical indoor farming coupled with, you know, uh, you know aquaponics coupled with, you know, kind of traditional row cropping. All of these different approaches give us a little more flexibility in the system when there is a breakdown. Hmm. Uh, my guest is Laura Riley. She is the business of food reporter for The Washington Post. We're talking about the effects of the coronavirus pandemic on food supply and food distribution here in America. Uh, there are some breakdowns starting to show up, and there are some efforts by the federal government to intervene to bridge the gaps between suppliers and distributors, in particular to get food to food banks where Lots of people who normally get their food at the grocery store are showing up at food banks because of the economic stress from the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, We have runs on the food banks here in the city of Detroit. In a little bit, we're going to talk with a local reporter about that. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and let us know what you think about the food supply and the way it's being affected by the coronavirus pandemic. Have you noticed things that you can't get? in as much supply at the grocery store? Are you worried about being able to get things in a few weeks or a few months that you normally get at the grocery store? Uh, Also, give us a call and tell us if you think we ought to be rethinking 
the way we produce and distribute food in this company in this country the massive industrialization of the food supply chain is one of the things that's very vulnerable right now should that be rethought should we go back to maybe regional production of food or local production of food as a way to protect ourselves against this. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start with uh, Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome uh, to the program. A timely conversation, Steve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, traditionally, the purveyors to the hotel and restaurant uh, and institutional industry have restricted their sales uh, to those in the industry, so-called to-the-trade mm-hmm. sales. The Gordon Company, 30-some years ago, set up a retail outlet, which is now a chain of stores across the state. Does your guest know of any plans by other companies in that sector to open up a retail-facing side to try to capture some of that uh, market and to get rid of surplus goods on the on the food service side. Mm. And let me end by saying that, like you, Steve, I will miss Tom's wisdom uh, and uh, listening and waiting in anticipation to hear what his comments will be about the questions of the day. Yeah, Ed, uh, thank you very much for the call and the question and that that note about Tom. Tom Wilson, one of our most ardent callers here, avid callers here on the on the program who who died last week uh, as a result of of the coronavirus. Uh, Laura Riley, I wonder if you can address the question that Ed is asking about about those kinds of suppliers. Well, first, I'm sorry to hear about your longtime reader. That's that's a terrible story. Mm. Um, yes. So, so, to answer the reader's question or the the, the call-in question, um, the USDA had a meeting the other day uh, with Cisco, U.S. Foods, all of the big mainline distributors that usually work directly with restaurants, and they are going to be employed. I mean, they have a lot of product on hand that they just have been sitting on. Um, and they also have the trucking fleet. So they, they certainly will be part of the solution in terms of getting food to where it needs to be. Um, you know, we're, there are these huge uh, surpluses of certain things. So in, in, in meat, um, we're seeing a lot of the premium stuff, bacon, uh, the, the sirloin strips, tenderloins, those things historically go to restaurants and we don't buy them at retail. So we're going to see some kind of carcass utilization problems where we're, the, the system is being thrown out of whack. For instance, we eat a ton of French fries as a nation, but we mostly do that out. We mostly are not frying at home. Mm-hmm. There are mountains of Idaho potatoes um, that are un- unused right now. So the, the trick is going to be doing, establishing these new transportation routes in a timely way so that there isn't stuff languishing in the field. Yeah, I mean, there's, um, something, there's something really ironic and, and bitterly ironic about that, the, 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 the amount of food that's available versus where it is and how to get it to the people who, because of this breakdown, are, are really suffering. Well, and there are price pressures, too. I think that one thing it's, um, people don't acknowledge very often is that this time of year, before we, we are in our full summer you know, harvest season, this time of year, 
the lion's share of the produce in our grocery stores is imported from Mexico. Um, you know, there's a lot of price, price pressure at the grocery store, whereas California and Florida produce this time of year tends to be sold into food service. So when restaurants went down, Florida tomatoes, say, had no buyers. You know, they couldn't get into the grocery store because they can't compete on price with Mexican product. So a lot of those, a lot of that product was just disked under. Um, so yeah, it's, it's tragic. And, you know, yesterday we, we heard that um, millions of piglets are being uh, slaughtered and buried, basically, because there is, there, there's that backup in the meat processing plants now, and they can't get to, you know, they can't get in line to get slaughtered. Mm. Um, so there, there are some, some just tragic disconnects um, in the system right now that, that hopefully we have the, the wherewithal and brains to, to work out. Yeah. Uh, again, Ed, thanks very much for the call and for that question. Let's go to Elisa in Gross Point Park. Elisa, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Good. How are you guys? Good, how are you? Good, thanks. So I've um, been tuning in and out of the news, you know, as, as uh, I think many of us are. But um, I'm happy that I caught you guys today talking about this um, breakdown in the food supply because um, I feel like we would be very, very remiss if we didn't mention that Detroit has such an incredibly robust culture of urban gardening and urban mm -hmm. agriculture. Mm -hmm. And um, so I really just want to like take a moment to encourage people to reach out to like, you know, keep growing Detroit and feed them free and and um, D-Town Farms. And there, you know, there's sure. a lot all over the city. But um, here in Gross Point Park, I live right on the Detroit-Gross Point Park border. Um, we've partnered with Detroit A Bloom because they gave us land when, um, when some folks came up with the idea to plant a victory garden. And so um, over the last, I don't know, two weeks or so, we've cleared um, two city lots that were just vacant lots. We've um, started trenching out beds, and the... Um, the goal is it is ultimately just to like feed people who will be hungry, and so um, we're just um, taking stock of what we all had. You know, if you if you're a garden type, then yeah. we're kind of like, hmm, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder how many seeds I should be right. I should be starting <laughs> right now. Um, and like I, for example, have far more started than I could ever possibly consume in my own household, and I know um, many of my neighbors. Um, the same. Mm. And so we, you know, we started this garden um, about two weeks ago, and we're getting ready to do our first planting tomorrow. And um, it's just like, also provided this other opportunity for, you know, because the Gross Point Detroit border is always so vexed. Um, it's another opportunity for some um, real, I mean, not to yeah. be corny and say grassroots, but really grassroots community building um, across these borders that are... Um, that are pretty hard under normal circumstances, right? They're pretty yeah. hard under normal circumstances and are also, like, if anything shows you that the border is a um, construct with real consequences. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Lisa, I really, I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments, and I'm, I'm, I want to encourage you to... Keep listening to the show as well. Our next guests are going to talk a little more about local uh, issues around food supply right now. But I, but I want to give Laura Riley a chance to talk about the idea of, again, having more local production of food. Step in 
to fill this gap? Is that something that uh, that we're going to see even more? Oh, absolutely. So, Stephen, if you go online right now to to Burpee or uh, Shepherd Seeds or any of the kind of big heirloom seed companies, they are sold out. You know, there there are very few seeds to be had because I think everyone had that same idea about being more. Uh, you know, starting a victory garden. I mean, it's kind of, it's a wartime mentality, right? Mm -hmm, To be a little mm -hmm. bit more self-sufficient. You know, we're all baking our own bread. We're like pioneer people, you know, in in many regards. But in terms of small local farms, um, a lot of them that that have developed relationships with restaurants have had to pivot on the fly and figure out new markets. And, And the ones that have social media savvy have been the ones that have maybe had the most success. Um, you know, if you can can build, if you can, uh, if you have a, a newsletter or a mailing list, or you know, make good use of Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, it's easy to say, "Hey, I'm starting a CSA with my product, um, the stuff that you know I would have sold into the restaurants," and and you start building a you know a, 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 a you know a, a business, a new kind of strand of your business that way. So we've seen a lot of that nationally. Um, and I think that will continue because I think that, that there is um, a, a powerful uh, need to know who is making the food that, that you're eating right now. I think that that's a part of this, too, is this, um, you know, fear of the unknown. And sure. I think the more you know about the, the provenance of your food, the more comfortable you feel with it. Okay, Laura Riley, reporter who covers the business of food for The Washington Post. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. I want to turn now to uh, a more local conversation about what's going on with food supply and distribution during the coronavirus pandemic. Louis Aguilar is a journalist who wrote a piece about this for Bridge Detroit, which is a forthcoming publication that I have been deeply involved with uh, helping to build here in Metro Detroit. Louis Aguilar, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. So uh, let's start with this piece that you wrote last week uh, about uh, longstanding food access and food insecurity issues here in Detroit. The pandemic is making that much, much worse. Tell us how much worse. Well, there is just a surge in demand for food banks, really. I mean, for free groceries, essentially, by tens of thousands of people uh, across the state. Uh, The the estimates are pretty uh, well estimates because most food banks are too busy dealing with the surge demand to do detailed analysis. But uh, the Food Bank Council of Michigan, which sort of oversees the major food banks across the state, estimates says there's a 41 percent in new demand for their services since mid-March, when you know mainly coronavirus prompted uh, stay-at-home shutdowns for most businesses. And that really kind of amounts to like 3,000 temporary food sites across the state have been set up uh, to meet the demand. And most of it is uh, from people who don't usually go to food banks. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there's one in four workers in Michigan have filed for unemployment. Uh, So there there is just a surge in demand. And uh, oftentimes, I don't know how often, but I mean, certainly I saw cases last two weeks ago, where uh, uh, dozens of cars had to be turned away from a site because uh, the site simply just ran out of food. Mm. Uh, Talk about this supply issue that we were just talking about with the reporter from the Washington Post. 
Is that affecting our local food banks as well? Are they having yes. a problem getting their hands on enough food to, to distribute to, to yeah. people who need it? There's a couple of things, really. I mean, as someone from the West Side pointed out, she works with the group that uh, essentially supplies the western part of the state and the UP. She said the need for for food is skyrocketing, like donations are plummeting. Uh, you know, I mean, there's just obviously a much more demand for food. More food are, is needed, but at the same time, major donors, whether it's local grocery stores or chains like Walmart and Meyer, uh, aren't able to give as much, obviously, because there's a lot of consumer demand right now for food. Mm-hmm. And also, there is a logistical problem of really just getting uh, food delivered on time to food banks. So it is uh, uh, a lot of things coming at once uh, for food banks and people trying to get free food. Hmm. Uh, what about grocery stores? And is that is the relationship between grocery stores and food banks changing because of this right now? In some sense, yes. I you know I know that uh, the food bank council and the state uh, is working with. Uh, Companies like Meyer to try to secure more food uh, as, as opposed to just relying on donations, uh, which is really usually what happens. Uh, but I I don't know the logistics of it. I think the deal is supposed to be announced hopefully this week about how uh, they're going to be able to secure uh, uh, much more food very soon that will go directly to food banks. And I'm not sure if it means it was a donation or uh, or just money is going to come through the feds or the state to secure that food. Hmm. Uh, also talk about the sort of long-term prospects here. I, the, the strain on food banks is tremendous right now. Presumably that will ease at some point. But I, I think we're also in for an extended period of need that we didn't have before. What are the food banks saying about how they're preparing for that and whether they'll be able to meet the needs that that people are going to have? Well, I you know, they are you're right, they are examining uh, the access to food and to try to secure more food through a variety of ways. I mean, uh, the previous guest for The Washington Post talked about uh, getting more food from farmers directly to consumers and food banks are also part of that conversation to get uh, that kind of food from farmers to food banks. So there are a number of different ways that they are trying to secure food access to uh, to people. And also, you know, uh, the federal government and the state have been working on things like extending uh, benefits, uh, SNAP benefits, basically food benefits to uh, more people. Uh, you know, there's certainly been issues about uh, extending unemployment benefits. I mean, hopefully that will ease the demand for uh, free food by many. But it's still uh, an unknown situation. Um, so it's, you know, they're, they're working hard. I don't know if anyone has real answers at this point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Louis Aguilar, senior reporter for Bridge Detroit. Uh, it was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks for coming by. Thank you.
And you can read Lewis's work right now at Bridge Michigan. And again, Bridge Detroit is a new publication that will begin here in Southeast Michigan in the next few weeks. You'll hear more about that here from me on WDET. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Jerry Brisson from Gleaners Community Food Bank about the food supply and distribution issues during the pandemic here in Southeast Michigan. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about food and the strains on food supply and distribution during the coronavirus pandemic. Lots of more people are in need of food right now, and you have lots of food piling up in ways uh, that it didn't before, unable to get to the people who need it the most. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what you've noticed about food and the differences with food during this pandemic. Are you someone who's notices, noticing differences at the grocery store that you go to to get food? Uh, are you worried about supplies of certain kinds of food? Are you somebody who went out and bought up a lot of something as this got started in anticipation of the idea that it wouldn't necessarily be around for a long time? Also, give us a call if you're someone who's involved in some way with trying to get food to people who need it right now, or if you're somebody who is out looking for food uh, because of the economic strain because of the coronavirus pandemic. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. And joining us now to talk more about the local needs here with food supply and distribution is Jerry Brisson. He is the president and CEO of Gleaners. Jerry, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. It's great to be on and to speak with you again. I mean, you know, we touched base a little bit on the Tuxedo Project a little while ago, and I'm hoping that's going well for you, too. I know it's really helping that community over there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, food food security is a constant issue in neighborhoods like that and and of course right now they they are much worse. The the the, the situation is much worse for many of our neighbors over on Tuxedo. I wonder if you can start by talking about the what you are seeing in terms of need right now. You guys are very busy uh with with customers or or people who need food who you aren't accustomed to having to serve. Give us a snapshot of how all that looks. Great. So the the first piece of it is when the schools closed, families just weren't ready to make up for the meals that they lost because their kids would get one or two or sometimes even three meals at school. Now, families in the summer obviously have to face that. But it happened so suddenly um, that, you know, people didn't have time to prepare. And so a lot of families who, you know, might have been, you know, kind of making ends meet and doing okay, all of a sudden had a lot more meals to provide in their own households 
And so the first uh, thing we had to do was figure out how to make sure that those families were going to be well served. And of course, we serve five counties, uh, Wayne, Oakland, Macomb, Livingston, and Monroe. And so, you know, it's not just a matter of uh, a few sites over there. It's, you know, really thinking about, well, what are the schools doing? What is the state doing? You know, coordinating with a lot of people so that there were no duplication of efforts, but at the same time, we could get a lot more food out to a lot more households. So our plan started with 66 new distribution sites spread across those five counties with the intention that they would be able to serve 10,000 more households a week. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, what that really looks like, and I know there's big numbers coming and it's hard to get your head around them sometimes, but on a normal month, Gleaner serves three and a half to four million pounds of food through our network of about 500 partners. So just to try to put this to scale, those partners are pantry, soup kitchens, shelters, schools. And now we're, we're distributing about 6 million pounds a month with an additional 66 new sites that on average are seeing between 270 and 300 households per distribution. Mm. So, so in addition to that, we put together about 50,000 what we call a quarantine box of food, and it's really designed to be, you know, three meals a day for the time that a person would have to be quarantined, which is a couple weeks, because there's so many low-income people who obviously have been really hit by the COVID virus, and, you know, they really have nothing they can do. They're stuck in their house, and so... We wanted to make sure we had a way to reach them, and particularly seniors who often have mobility issues as well. So working with the area agencies on aging and the state of Michigan and others to try to make sure that we're making food available to people in those situations as well. And those two initiatives were really the biggest piece of how we said we're going to reach as many people as we can so that the pandemic doesn't have to be a panic. Mm. Mm. Uh, the this disconnect between supply and distribution, which we've been talking about this hour, both at the national level and at the local level. I wonder if you can give us an idea of how that is playing out, the difficulty getting all of this surplus food that's been created in this in this country, but is just not here and is not set up to get here fast enough for people to be able to take advantage of it. Yeah, so you've got a couple a couple different food chains you got to think about here. So if you start with growers and what farmers can do, um, there's an awful lot of farmers that that half of all they grew went into the food services supply chain, right? So you take things like cheese, you know, cheeseburgers and pizzas and all the things that use cheese. Well, when that part of the economy basically shut down or or not quite shut down, but really decreased tremendously the amount of food they were ordering and getting. Obviously, you have certain things which there is nothing, the the whole rest of the world isn't going to, or the the community, I should say, isn't going to make up for that loss, at least certainly not in the short term. So where you see the most waste coming from is when you have a product that was really specialized for food service that really doesn't convert well into grocery. It, it's, it's, that's where you see the most difficulty in, in, I guess I would call it adaptation or being nimble. You just can't move that whole food supply chain from one place to the next. Hmm. 
Um, you know, they have, they have different size uh, containers, you know, big, big bags versus the bags that you would get in terms of, you know, even cheese, even, you know, sandwich cheese. Um, so their, their manufacturing facilities just aren't built to support grocery. At the same time, grocery stores have so many people now using them, it becomes a problem keeping everything in stock that they need. And that's why you see things missing. Right. It, because, you know, you've got way more people who used to primarily or at least significantly get fed through food services that now have to rely on grocery. And so therein lies the pinch for us. What that's meant is the, the food that comes in the right size packages for our food distribution sometimes isn't available and we've got to make substitutions. Hmm. Now, the easiest substitutions for us are to take what might have been canned and get fresh produce. And and we've been working on expanding our ability to distribute fresh produce literally for years. It's what people want. It's healthier. Um, it's a lot more flexible for them to do whatever they want with it. And so it's actually worked out pretty well as a way to offset some of the shortages and substitutions is that we've been able to replace a lot of things with fresh fruits and vegetables from as close as we can to as far away as we need to go. So that's been a, a very helpful strategy. But our suppliers care a lot about us and our work, and, and they are pretty tireless in trying to make sure we get what we need, and sometimes that's really literally just in time. Yeah. But thus far, we've been able to get the food at each of our distributions, and it looks pretty good now as we're looking through you know, May and the next couple of weeks I think look pretty solid. But we do have to stay on top of it pretty rigorously to make sure that we get everything we need and thus the community gets everything they need. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is always the number on the phones here. Let's go to Elena in Detroit. Elena, welcome to the program. Hello there. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I mm-hmm. just wanted to say that I had the opportunity to volunteer with um Mary Carmen Munoz last week at Left said to drive around some of the food boxes to the seniors hmm. who normally go to the senior center and take their meals every day. And Left said was very reluctant to close, but they had to close, of course, um, because that's where people really counted on getting meals a lot. Yeah. And driving around last week, dropping off these boxes to the addresses that I had on my list, and I had about um, 10, I believe, was really inspiring in this way. Passing down Werner and Dick's, I could see where the mosque was also distributing food and people were lining up. And the various agencies, every community is really busy at work, accepting these deliveries from wherever they're coming from. Focus Hope Cleaners, who knows. But people are getting fed through these lists of their community members, mm-hmm. their clients or whoever they are, and being able to do that was just, it, it really, um, when you come down Bagley, you had to go and get rerouted because the police are cordoning off the Mexican Village parking lot because there's so many cars lined up to pick up food there. That's one of the staging areas. But when you look around, and of course, Facebook is the um, official organ of communication for Detroit. When you see people on Facebook saying, I don't have any food, they'll have a response so fast. Hmm. And then people will be putting in the messages, I got it, I got it, inbox me the address. If people go on their own Facebook page or 
if you're not on social media, you can call somebody and invariably somebody will get food to people. And I know that there is hunger, but there's also incredible human response yeah. to making sure that people get food. And I just want to say that it's a very inspiring moment if you get a chance to help um, with the delivery, if it's not um, putting yourself at risk. We just pick up the boxes and take them and put them on people's porches and tell them that they're there, and then somebody will get it inside for them. Yeah. But it's really, I just wanted to say that it's a, it was a very hopeful moment. No, I, Elena, I'm glad you called and, and shared that experience. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who feel moved to, to do things like that that they maybe weren't doing before. Jerry Brisson, I wonder what your reaction is to Elena's story. Well, I think she's absolutely right, and I think, you know, there is hope, and I think it's one of the most important messages for people to, to know um, as hopeless as things can seem, there is always hope. And, and part of that hope is, is what she just described in terms of our resilience and the willingness of people to do what they have to do for their neighbors. I think Detroit is well known for that, and there's a reason for it. And we at Gleaners are inspired by volunteers like Elena who take their time and, and really do what they can for people with mobility issues. It's tremendous. So I'm, I'm inspired. I'm grateful. Um, the other thing I should say is people can call 211 if they need help. Mm -hmm. And and it's really important that that is the clearinghouse. It's United Way's helpline. We work closely with them. They know where all the food distributions are updated all the time. So if, if people need help, call 211. It's very effective. And and there's distributions every single day. They're open so people who need help can get help. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's quickly go to Paul in St. Clair County. Paul, welcome to the program. Oh, well, thank you. Good, good morning. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. So uh, I've been listening to your replies, and um, the situation here in St. Clair County is a little different in the respect that there, there's no cleaners food bank, mm -hmm. and so there's no, there's no deliveries of, of fresh food. Hmm. You, the, the food banks are usually run through the Economical Council, uh -huh, uh -huh. through churches, and uh, people are meeting in, well, they're meeting in church basements and garages and places where, you know, it's, it's more of a confined space with, with prepackaged foods and, yeah. and people in need come in and we fill out a notice for them and off the shelves and yeah paul I, I i really appreciate your calling and and sharing that experience uh, jerry brisson i've got about a minute left but uh respond to what he's saying here about out county places where gleaners and other food distributors don't exist really so the food bank of eastern michigan serves um, St. Clair County, mm -hmm. and I would say it's important to let them know what you're seeing because they're a great food bank. Kara Ross, who runs it, is a is an exceptional leader, and I think if she knows that more fresh food is needed or, you know, there there's so many people that are doing things. I can't be sure in this particular case if it's a pantry that's connected to the Food Bank of Eastern Michigan, but I would say they're a great food bank and they're there to help and, you know, letting them know, hey, we need more fresh produce would be a good thing. Okay. Gary Brisson, president and CEO of Gleaners. Thanks very much for being here for this conversation on Detroit Today. Hey, thanks. Nice talking to you, Stephen. Great to talk to you as well. 
All right, that's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow for a look at how immigration and climate policies are changing in America during this pandemic. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.